Okay, let's look at our scripture this Palm Sunday. This is John 12, 12 through 26. This is Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is God's word. Well, if you wanted to sum yourself up in a sentence, what would it be? It's interesting that people define you in a sentence, if you will, when they don't really even know you sometimes. My name is Carlos Rodriguez, and I don't know if you formed any uh, impression of me before you ever saw me. Perhaps you thought I was a shortstop for the New York Yankees, or I was a migrant worker who couldn't speak English, all from my name. I know, in fact, that there are people that have chosen to come to the church or not come to the church based on my name, based on the impression that they have of me. Celebrities spend tremendous amounts of time and money manufacturing their personas through social media and through press releases. So people will have an understanding. They will sum them up with a sentence that they want uh, to define them. And it's no secret that during this time of Easter, uh, that people are trying to sum up Jesus. If you go to the supermarket, and we still do that, you'll see periodicals emerging with this title, Jesus, who was he? To some, he was a great teacher. That's how they would describe him. To others, he was a, a legend. And to some, he's a political tool that's used by people to uh, put uh, themselves in power and to oppress and manage others. But of course, the most important question to answer is who does Jesus say he is? I love this passage in which you have these uh, Greeks who are coming to the Jewish festival of Passover and they ask a simple question. Sir, we want to see Jesus. They have a desire to know who really is this person. 
And Jesus gives a very, very interesting answer to their request. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What Jesus is really saying to the Greeks and he's saying to all of us is this. If you want to know, if you really want to know who I am, look to the cross. Because the cross shows you who I am. The cross gives the greatest answer to who Jesus is. An answer that's worthy of our heart, worthy of our devotion, worthy of our life. Because really what Jesus is saying is that I am love. You see, you'll only truly see Jesus when you see him as a crucified Savior. And so I want us to take this opportunity as we look at this passage to look at Jesus with fresh eyes and to ask the question, who are you? That's really what's going on in this passage. We're going to look at Jesus through the eyes of two particular groups. Number one, the crowds that are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the disciples who have accompanied Jesus. Because the only way that you will truly, truly see him is when you see him as a crucified Savior, something that the crowds could not do or would not do. Well, let's begin with the crowds. As Jesus is entering in on this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, there is already a plot on his life. In John 11, 53 and 57, based on Jesus uh, raising Lazarus from the dead, the Jewish authorities have basically put a price on his head. They have a, a bounty on him. And they have communicated to the Jewish community, if anybody sees him, you are supposed to turn him in. And so by all accounts, Jesus enters into Jerusalem as a criminal. And as he enters in, he's entering in during the greatest feast uh, during um, Israel's uh, calendar year. This is the Feast of Passover, when the city of Jerusalem would swell from somewhere between 200,000 to a million people coming to worship at the temple. And so Christ is coming in, and this crowd is coming in. In fact, there are three different crowds that we see here in this particular passage. The first is uh, those who have spent the night in Bethany. Uh, there was a feast for Jesus, and he has now come in, and he's uh, basically there accompanying him in from the city of Bethany, which is just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. There's another crowd, which are those who are streaming in from all four corners of Israel who are coming uh, to uh, the feast that really have nothing to do with Jesus. And finally, there's a crowd of people who are already there. They've, they're already in Jerusalem and they've uh, been preparing for the feast or whatever. And really, it's those who are already in Jerusalem who are the instigators of this flash mob, if you will. Notice in verse 12, it says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So they hear that Jesus is entering into where they are in Jerusalem, and what is their response? They take palm branches and they begin to wave them, saying, Hosanna! 
Now, the palm branch could be likened as the national symbol of Israel. You could consider, if you will, a national flag, much like we have the stars and stripes, or the British have the Union flag, a Union Jack. And so they begin waving national flags. And they begin singing a song, this Psalm from 118, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Probably, possibly the last time that this was sung in this type of environment was 150 years before, during the time of someone named Judas Maccabee. Judas Maccabee was one who was responsible for overthrowing the Greeks, for mounting an army and driving out foreign invaders. Indeed, his last name wasn't really Maccabee. That was a title given to him, which means hammer. Judas the hammer, if you will. And they were chanting this song for him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And after they had driven out the Greeks, they printed new money, and on those coins was the palm tree, the symbol of Israel. Because what Judas brought to the Israelites was freedom and prosperity. And that's exactly what these people who are chanting for Jesus are thinking as well. Notice what they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This word, Hosanna, which means save, can also, or has been taken during this time to mean save him, not simply save us. Maybe a translation that we could understand would be this, God save the king. And so there's this British type parade where they're cheering for the king. God save the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So what is it that they're doing? They're welcoming a king. In fact, the reason why the crowd went to meet him, verse 18, was they had heard that he had done this side, that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Here is one who was powerful, spiritually powerful, even more so than Judas Maccabee. Here is one who could conquer the Romans. And so they were uttering this seditious phrase that not one of them would have uttered if it was just them alone. Because to call someone else the king other than Caesar was to invite direct arrest from the Roman garrisons that were there. It was actually calling him king, which led to his demise. He would be arrested by Pilate later that week and asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? And so we have to ask the question, why were these 200,000 people doing this, waving the national flag and calling him king? Well, they appeared to be caught up in this nationalistic fervor. See, I don't know what possessed them to think that Jesus had come to free them from Rome. He never, ever indicated such a thing. He never said that. But I think if you were to interview somebody on the streets that day, why are you doing this? They probably would have said, because everybody else is. Or we're not exactly sure or he's gonna drive out our enemies. You see, to the Jews, the external enemies were the problem. 
those that were oppressing them, those that were causing problems to them, those that were not allowing them to be free, to be prosperous. Maybe if we were to ask the same question to us, why are you here? Would our answer be, because everyone else is. See, it's still very acceptable to go to church in this country, particularly during Palm Sunday and Easter and Christmas. It's what you do, like the rituals, if you will, of saying the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed. So we have to examine our motives as well, not simply to look upon these people in this crowd. And ask the question, is my Christian faith simply another way of being American? Jesus is part of my portfolio, if you do, if you will, of what makes me prosper, of what makes me whole. Being a Christian is as American as apple pie. I don't know if you're familiar with this song by Keith Urban. Uh, he's a country singer who's from New Zealand, by the way. I didn't know that country singers could come from New Zealand. But he penned a wonderful song titled John Cougar, John Deere, John 316. Almost like this is what it means to be an American in that order. Here's some lyrics from the song. This is the chorus. I'm a child of a backseat freedom, baptized by rock and roll, Marilyn Monroe and Garden of Eden. Never grow up, never grow old. Just another rebel in the great wide open on the boulevard of broken dreams. And I've learned everything I needed to know from John Cougar, John Deere, John 3.16. And the bridge says this. I spent a lot of years running from believing, looking for another way to save my soul. The longer I live, the more I see it. There's only one way home. And then it moves into the chorus again. I learned everything I needed to know from John Cougar, John Deere, John 3.16. See, it's a philosophy of life. And they're of equal importance, right? American music, American manufacturing, and American religion. Never mind that Christianity started in uh, Israel. And there are more Christians in China than there are in the United States. See, there's this mentality, it's very easy to fall into, that if I give him honor, if I give him glory, he'll give me what I want. Much like these other things will give me what I want. I'll play the religious game, Jesus, as long as you help me to have a better marriage, to have more prosperity, to have peace of mind. But when we ask, why did he really come? The answer is, I don't know, or I don't care. Certainly was the answer for these people. And as a result, they were bound for disappointment. Because one week later, after Jesus had not given the crowd what they wanted, they weren't shouting Hosanna to the son of David. They were shouting, crucify him. Don't be like them and miss it because you're blinded by your own expectations. Let's move on to the disciples who had chosen to follow Jesus, who, if you think anyone would have gotten it, 
they would have gotten it because they had spent day in, day out, over the course of three years listening to Jesus. And yet, there are multiple times that we see that the disciples weren't getting it. And in fact, they didn't get it right here. Notice when the crowd says, Hosanna, Hosanna, in verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, and behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. See, the disciples are caught up in this just like everyone else. I mean, they've given their whole life to follow Jesus. And surely they're affected by the roar of the crowd shouting, here comes the king, waving the national flag. But what does Jesus do? He goes and he gets a donkey. See, they didn't realize, they couldn't figure it out, that Jesus was enacting and filling out what was taught in Zechariah 9.9, the Old Testament. Even though they'd went to the synagogue as kids, even though they'd heard the passage, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The passage tells them and tells us that, yes, he is a king, and he's our king coming to you. But he's a righteous king. Nowhere was the crowd caring about the righteousness of Jesus Christ when he came in. But they cared about his power, for they were looking for a hammer. But Jesus is the righteous one who has lived a perfect life. The life that we could never live. The life that we chose not to live by rebelling. Jesus Christ has obeyed his heavenly father from the beginning. He is king because he is righteous. And he is having salvation, says the passage. He's not there to overthrow the Romans. He's there to save their souls. They're seeing their issues and their problems as external. But our problems in the end are not external. Our problems are in our heart. Our problems are that we do not love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we do not love our neighbor as ourselves. Someone must save us. Not God save the king, but oh Jesus, have mercy on me. And so Jesus comes. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. See, there's a reason Jesus went and found a young donkey and sat on it. Because when a king, and he most certainly was a king, would come into a town, if he came on a stallion, he came for war. But if he came on a donkey, he came for peace. And so Jesus comes in meekness. He comes in humility. And the crowd can't see it. And neither can the disciples. Zechariah goes on, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, 
which is another term for Israel, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Jesus has not come to overthrow an external enemy. Jesus has come to bring peace among all people. He's come to bring to break the bow, the bow of war, and he's come to cut it off. He's come to usher in a time when all of us will truly know and love one another. And his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus isn't just there for Israel to drive out the Romans. He's there to be king of the entire world, to be king of you and to be king of me, and in the end, to be the king of the nations. Zechariah 9.11 says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. They couldn't understand this concept of the blood of my covenant that would set prisoners free. Even when a week later in the Last Supper, Jesus would take the cup and said, Take and drink this. This is the blood of the new covenant that I am shedding for you, that you might be free. Jesus did not come to conquer through violence. He came to conquer through dying. So when did the disciples actually get it? Notice that it says, it was not until he was glorified that they understood what had been done to him and what he had said. What does it mean when he was glorified? Jesus answers in verse 23 and 27. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus is speaking of his death on the cross. It was only when they saw him dying on the cross, being laid in the tomb, and had the Holy Spirit to be able to reflect on these things, to understand that this was true glory. This was what the Son of Man came to do. Because a price must be paid. And Jesus Christ was willing and able to pay it, to lay down his life. The disciples and the crowd couldn't see how humility and sacrifice would bring rescue. They couldn't see that he came because of my need and yours. That he came to bring his life as a ransom. But in the end, when they saw the nail-pierced hands and the scar in his side, it clicked. They were able to clearly see at the cross. I remember coming to faith at age 18. I did not grow up in a household of faith. But my uh, girlfriend who I dated 
throughout high school was of a religious family, though she also didn't come to faith uh, until uh, college. But I remember her giving me a Bible to look at at age 16. And as I looked at it and had all my preconceived notions of who he was, I saw him as a teacher. I saw him as a political leader, as a philosopher. And my eyes were blinded to who he was. It was only at verse 18, excuse me, at age 18, when I saw him on the cross and it clicked. When I realized who he was and what he had come to do and what he had done for me. Because we can only truly see him when we see him as a crucified savior. You see, my friends, Jesus is to you exactly what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what he did there. You do not understand Christ until you understand his cross. And so this Palm Sunday, we can be like the crowds or we can stop and see and marvel at his relentless march toward the cross. For behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. For it is not his greatness, his glory, or his power, or his wisdom in the end that will draw you to him, that will make you want to give everything up to him, to fall on your face and adore him. It's his love. So do you know it? Look to the cross. Remember those Greeks. We want to see Jesus. And Jesus says, look for me at the cross because that is where you'll find me. As we lead up to Good Friday, and to Easter Sunday. Let us ponder these things up into our hearts. Let us think about this Jesus and this new definition of glory, one who would be great by giving up all for us. Because you will only truly see him when you see him as a crucified Savior. Let's pray. Oh God, Father, give us eyes to see the Lord Jesus for who he really is. Of course, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-great. But it's his love that draws us to him. For greater love is no one than this, that he will give up his life for his friends. And let us marvel at the goodness and the glory and the greatness of our crucified Savior. Pray all of these things in Christ's name.